first published in November of 2014. Inspired by Arthur Mackin's The Great God Pan and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This is Stephen King's Revival. Patreon. Thank you for supporting the Yes Have Some podcast. My name is Jacob Walsh, and we're going to be talking about Revival a little bit. Now, I finished Revival yesterday. And, you know, at one point when I was reading this, I, I didn't think I would do an episode for this one, not because I wasn't enjoying it or anything like that, but it is sort of a slow burn. I also was not sure. I knew ahead of time that there were, you know, some religious themes in this book and and that was a big part of it and I wondered if it would affect me as much or in the same way as some other people just because I've I've never been religious in any sort of way and and I and I'm, I'm I am interested to know if somebody who is deeply religious would I don't know, come out, come out the other end of this, uh, I don't know, even worse than I was. Because I'm going to tell you, like, I, I, uh, I, I had read, there's a lot of talk about Revival recently. Um, the King cast has been talking about it a lot. They really like this book and they push it, they push it on people and, I, and I've heard them talk about it. And I've heard this book referenced as having one of Stephen King's darkest endings and i mean i've read pet cemetery that's a pretty dark ending there's been a lot of pretty dark endings in stephen king so to hear that this had a pretty rough ending i said you know what let me let me jump on this book let me read this and i need to know what people consider a pretty rough stephen king ending so picked it up and 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 i am going to go through kind of the basic plot, I'm going to I'm going to give you a rundown, but I'm not going to go super super detailed in every little bit of what's happening because I do want to talk about the ending because it did sort of uh hit me in a different way and it was look, we'll get there in a second. But I but I will say I'm going to spoil this and and you know I all of these are are spoiler episodes and and I sort of feel a little bad about that, but I guess these episodes are kind of for the people who have already read or who are not planning to read. If you think you might read Revival, then shut this episode off. Shut this off. Shut this all off. Um, I I just I don't want it to be spoiled if it's something you might pick up and and check out because it's worth it's worth coming to the conclusion on your own. Don't, don't listen to me read it to you, because that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read you the last bit here in a, in a few. 
because I found it horrifying. And maybe if I read it to you, uh, I will be able to get it out of my head a little bit. But like I said, if you think you might read this, please do so. And just maybe come back to this later. Also, I know I still owe you guys a thinner episode. We'll get to it, okay? We'll get to it. I've been busy, I'm sorry. Oh boy, Revival. So, you got one of your main characters here, uh, Charles Jacobs, and, and he's a minister. He, he's a new minister, he comes to town. And your main character, whose name is Jamie, he's a kid. Um, his brother has uh, this issue he's he's unable to he 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 was in an accident and um like he can't he can't speak and 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 charles jacobs the minister here he he kind of um he cures him he 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 puts a a belt around his neck it's a like a low voltage belt and he, he uses electricity and and he he cures this kid and that that's pretty much where everything starts. You know, you, you, you have this minister who is performing miracles basically. And early on in the book, um, uh, Jacobs, uh, his, the minister Jacobs, his, his wife and his child die in a, in a pretty rough auto accident. And when this happens, it causes, um, Jacobs to basically just denounce all religion. And he does it during a sermon. He's having this big sermon in town and just like right in the middle of it, middle of it, he, he's, he has a breakdown. He's devastated about his family and he has this awful emotional breakdown where he denounces, um, God. So he gets kind of, um, banished out of the town and then we we leave him for a while, and there's there's a lot of uh you know time jumping in this in this story. It goes you know it's who sorry Jamie Jamie starts as a child and and we cut to a couple years and he's a little older. Um, he's a, he's a musician in a band, and while he's on tour, um, you know he finds uh that uh Charles uh Charles Jacobs is is performing and he's doing, you know like faith healing and, and, and he, he uses electricity every time to do this. Now, when Jamie is a musician, he, he falls into drugs. He's using heroin. And when he meets back up with Jacobs, Jacobs says, Hey, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to treat you. I'm going to get rid of this condition. And he does. So he, he uses electricity and he gets rid of, um, Jamie's hair, uh, <laughs> heroin, uh, whatever his, his, uh, his habit. That's the word it's habit. It's a very weird thing. And it goes on for years and years. And eventually Jamie has like a kind of a weird side effect at some point. And then he sees some other people have had side effects and he ends up finding out that some people who have been cured by Jacobs have killed themselves or others have gone crazy. And then Jamie finds out that Jacobs has been studying, you know, like occult books and stuff like that. He tries to track Jacobs down. He tries to ask them about it. And 
He doesn't really want to tell him. He doesn't, of course, he's not going to go into it. And, you know, several years later, Jamie receives a letter from Jacobs, including a letter from um, a childhood friend who has cancer. And Jacobs says, you know what? I will heal her, but only Jamie, if you will come be an assistant for me for one last experiment. Now, I just took like eight minutes and told you 350 pages of this book. Super light details. Clearly, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but that's just kind of how you get to what the the main thing we're going to talk about here. Again, again, I'm about to spoil the shit out of this, and I, and I promise you, it's not going to be as impactful just hearing a nine-minute explanation from me than if you just read this book yourself. So don't don't be a Craig. Read a book. Put that on a shirt. Um, anyway, you know what? Jamie says, okay, I'll do it. So Jacob does cure uh, his childhood friend, gets rid of her cancer. Jamie shows up. He's going to help him prepare for his final experiment. Now, in the beginning, I said that this book was inspired by Frankenstein, and, and this is where the Frankenstein kicks in. Jacob's, you know, he's into electricity. They've been hinting at it the whole time. He he talks to Jamie and he, and he tells him that he has a secret electricity. It's some sort of energy source. And that is what he has been using to cure people. And what he's going to try to do now is he wants to harness it. He wants, he has built a lightning rod and he wants to channel all of this uh, weird energy into one woman who is terminally ill. Her name is Mary Fay, and she is in his lab. He he pulls her life support plug when he knows there's going to be a storm. He lets her pass away because he wants to do this experiment. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to cure her. He wants her to be dead because what he wants to do is pull her back from the afterlife. And basically his entire plan here is that he wants to know what has happened to his wife and child. He wants like comfort and he wants to know that his dead family are in a good place. So that's crazy. Anyway, the experiment works. They bring Mary Faye Back to life, sort of. Her body kind of comes back. But much like, you know what? I, I mentioned Pet Cemetery earlier. This is an interesting thing that I just thought of right now. You know, in Pet Cemetery, when you bury somebody in the Pet Cemetery and they come back to life, it's not really them. It's a shell. It's their body, but what's inhabiting that body is something evil or some sort of demonic force or something it's you don't really know there's something in there but it's not the person it's not the mind of the person you buried similar thing here mary faye comes back but she comes back and she's kind of a a doorway to the afterlife now there is a a good chunk of craziness that happens here 
and I'm going to read it to you because I, I can't, there's no way to properly explain what is happening other than to just hear it or read it. Now, and I will say before I start this again that this book is kind of a slow burn. Things happen, but it's it takes its time getting here. You know, it's kind of a chill story. I, I don't want to use the word chill. It's not chill. There, There's definitely some weird things going on, but it's it's sort of mysterious. Up until this, this kind of happens and it's insane. And just please turn your lights off, put, put the distractions away. And just listen to this, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance. And this is what happens when Mary Fay comes back to life. Here we go. Revival. She opened her eyes. Mary Fay opened her eyes, but they were no longer human eyes. Lightning had smashed the lock on a door that was never supposed to be opened, and Mother came through. They were blue eyes at first, bright blue. There was nothing in them. They were utterly blank. They stared at the ceiling through Jacob's avid face, and through the ceiling, and through the cloudy sky beyond. And then they came back. They registered him, and some understanding, some comprehension came into them. She made that humming sound again, but I hadn't seen her draw a single breath. What need? She was a dead thing, except for those inhuman, staring eyes. Where have you been, Mary Fay? His voice trembled. Saliva continued to drip from the bad side of his mouth, leaving damp spots on the sheet. Where have you been? What did you see there? What waits beyond death? What's on the other side? Tell me! Her head began to pulse, as if the dead brain within had grown too big for its casing. Her eyes began to darken, first to lavender, then to purple, and then to indigo. Her lips drew back in a smile that widened and became a grin. It grew until I could see all of her teeth. One of her hands trundled across the counterpane, spider-like, and seized Jacob's wrist. He gasped and flailed for balance with his free hand. I took it, and thus the three of us, two living, one dead, were joined. Her head pulsed on the pillow, growing, bloating. She was no longer beautiful. She was no longer even human. The room didn't fade. It was still there. But I saw it was an illusion. The cottage was an illusion. And Skytop and the resort, the whole living world, was an illusion. What I'd thought of as reality was nothing but a scrim as flimsy as an old nylon stocking. The true world was behind it. Basalt blocks rose to a black sky punched with howling stars. 
I think those blocks were all that remained of a vast, ruined city. It stood in a barren landscape. Barren, yes, but not empty. A wide and seemingly endless column of naked human beings trudged through it, heads down, feet stumbling. This nightmare parade stretched all the way to the distant horizon. Driving the humans were ant-like creatures, most black, some the dark red of Venice blood. When humans fell, the ant things would lunge at them, biting and butting until they gained their feet again. I saw young men and old women. I saw teenagers with babies in their arms. I saw children trying to help each other along, and on every face was the same expression of blank terror. They marched beneath the howling stars. They fell. They were punished and chived to their feet with gaping but bloodless bite wounds on their arms and legs and abdomens. Bloodless because these were the dead. The foolish mirage of earthly life had been torn away, and instead of the heaven, preachers of all persuasions promised. What awaited them was a dead city of cyclopean stone blocks below a sky that was itself a scrim. The howling stars weren't stars at all. They were holes. And the howls emerging from them came from the true Protus Magnum Universum. Beyond the sky were entities. They were alive and all-powerful and totally insane. The after-effects are trailing fragments of an unknown existence beyond our lives, Charlie had said, and that existence lay close in this sterile place, a prismatic world of insane truth that would drive a man or woman mad if it were so much as glimpsed. The ant things served those great entities, just as the marching naked dead served the ant things. Perhaps the city wasn't a city at all, but a kind of anthill where all the dead of earth were first enslaved and then eaten. And once that happened, did they finally die for good? Perhaps not. I didn't want to remember the couplet Bree had quoted in her email, but was helpless not to. That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. Somewhere in that marching horde were Patsy Jacobs and Tagalong Murray. Somewhere in it was Claire, who deserved heaven and had gotten this instead, a sterile world below hollow stars, a carnal kingdom where guardian ant things sometimes crawled and sometimes stood upright, their faces hideously subjective of the human. This horror was the afterlife, and it was waiting not just for the evil ones among us, but for us all. My mind began to totter. It was a relief, and I almost let go. One idea saved my sanity, and I still cling to it. The possibility that this nightmare landscape was itself a mirage. No! I shouted. 
The marching dead turned toward my face. The ant things did likewise, their mandibles gnashing, their loathsome eyes, loathsome but intelligent, glaring. Overhead, the sky began to tear open with a titanic ripping sound. An enormous black leg covered with tufts of spiny fur pushed through it. The leg ended in a vast claw made of human faces. Its owner wanted one thing and one thing only. To silence the voice of negation. It was mother. No! I shouted again. No, 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 no! It was our connection to the revived dead woman that was causing this vision. Even in the extremity of my horror, I knew it. Jacob's hand clutched mine like a manacle. If it had been the right hand and the good hand, I could never have freed myself in time. But it was the weakened left. I pulled with all my might as that obscene leg stretched toward me and that claw of screaming faces groped, meaning to yank me upward into the unknowable universe of horror that awaited beyond that black paper sky. Now through the rip in the firmament, I could see an insane light and colors never meant to be looked upon by mortal creatures. The colors were alive. I could feel them crawling over me. I gave one final yank, freeing myself from Charlie's grip and went tumbling backward. The empty plain, the vast broken city, the groping claw, they all disappeared. And I was in the bedroom of the cottage again, sprawled on the floor. My old fifth business stood beside the bed. Mary Fay, or whatever dark creature Jacob's secret electricity had summoned into her corpse and dead-brained, gripped his hand. Her head had become a pulsing jellyfish with a human face crudely scrawled upon it. Her eyes were a lustrous black. Her grin. You would say no one can actually grin ear to ear. It's just a saying. But the dead woman, who was no longer dead, was doing exactly that. The lower half of her face had become a black pit that trembled and throbbed. Jacob stared at her with bulging eyes. His face had gone a cheesy yellow-white. Patricia? Patsy, where are you? Where's Maury? The thing spoke for the first and last time. Gone, Gone to serve the great ones in the knoll. No death, no light, no rest. No. His head hitched and he screamed it. No! He tried to pull back. She, it, held him fast. Now from the dead woman's gaping mouth came a black leg with a flexing claw at the end of it. The claw was alive. It was a face. One I recognized. It was Tagalong Mori. And he was screaming. I heard a rustling sound as the leg passed between her lips. In my nightmares, I still hear it. 
It reached, it stretched, it touched the sheet and scrabbled there like skinless fingers, leaving scorch marks that gave off thin tendrils of smoke. The black eyes of the thing that had been Mary Fay were bulging and spreading. They merged over the bridge of the nose and became a single, enormous orb that stared with blank avidry. Charlie's head snapped back and he began to make a gargling sound. He stood on his toes, seeming to make one final galvanic effort to free himself from the grasping hand of the thing that was trying to come through from that insane netherworld I now know is so close to our own. Then he collapsed to his knees and fell forward with his forehead against the bed. He looked like he was praying. The thing let go of him and turned its unspeakable attention to me. It threw back the sheet and struggled to rise, that black insect's leg still extruding from its gaping maw of a mouth. Now Patsy's face had joined Maury's. They were melted together, writhing. I got up by pressing my back against the wall and pushing with my legs. Mary Fay's bloated, pulsing face was darkening, as if she were strangling on the thing inside of her. That one smooth black eye stared and reflected in it. I fancied I could see the Cyclopean city and the endless column of the marching dead. I don't remember yanking open the top drawer of the bureau. I only know that all at once the gun was in my hand. I believe it had been an automatic with the safety on. I would have just stood there pulling at the frozen trigger until the thing arose, shambled across the room, and seized me. That claw would have pulled me into its gaping mouth and into that other world where I would face some unspeakable punishment for daring to say one word. No. But it was an automatic. It was a revolver. I fired five times and four of the bullets went into the thing trying to rise from Mary Fay's deathbed. I have reason to know exactly how many shots I fired. I heard the roar of the gun, saw repeated muzzle flashes in the gloom, felt it jump in my hand, but all of that seemed to be happening to someone else. The thing flailed and fell back. The melted faces screamed with mouths that it had merged. I remember thinking, You can't kill Mother with bullets, Jamie. No, not her. But it was no longer moving. The obscenity that had come out of its mouth lay limp, trailing on the pillow. The faces of Jacob's wife and son were fading. I covered my eyes and screamed. Over and over again, I screamed until I was hoarse. When I lowered my hands, the claw was gone. Mother was gone, too. Okay, okay, okay. All right, Stephen King. Okay, all right, all right. So after this, Jacobs is dead, and Jamie basically, there's a little more, there's another chapter here. Jamie puts the gun in Jacob's hand and makes it look like Jacob shot this woman so he doesn't go to jail. And, you know, one thing you might be thinking is, um, oh, so this crazy creature can come through and just like a gun kills it. No, it's not that it killed it. It's just that um, Jamie sort of talks about it in the next chapter that he just thinks he he was able to close the door 
by shooting shooting the body. Um, it it's a horrible, horrible. The the thing that is so dark here and so scary is is learning that there is no. This is the afterlife. This is what happens to everybody. There's no heaven and hell. It's just this. After you die, you go to this place referred to as the Knoll by mother, where you are tormented by ant creatures and ancient gods that live in the sky and you're just tortured and eaten over and over again and it's going to happen to every single person Jacobs has spent all this time trying to put together this experiment so he could get you know a little bit of comfort knowing that his wife and child are okay and they're maybe happy and they're in heaven and they're living this wonderful afterlife and he immediately finds out that no, they're, they're being tortured. They're being tortured by some giant ants and you're, you're probably going to join them pretty soon. And that's what eternity is going to be for you. It's, that's just a terrifying, it's terrifying on a different level. You know, I, I was like, how can this be scary? How can this be more awful than pet cemetery? You know, Pet Cemetery has a really crazy dark ending where this entire family is killed except for one. It's just I'm not going to get into Pet Cemetery right now. Everybody knows the story of Pet Cemetery, but that is one of Stephen King's darker endings. I wasn't expecting darkness on an existential level. This isn't just a family dies. This is we have looked into the afterlife and we now know that. After this is eternities of torture for everybody, whether you're good or bad. There's no heaven to go to. There's no option. It is this. That is terrifying. That is terrifying. That's the scary thing. It's awful. In the last chapter of the book, it's three years later, and Jamie is going to therapy he has told his therapist all of this they don't of course they don't believe it um is it therapy or is in he or is he just straight up in a hospital yeah i think it's in therapy so and um but he does find out that all of the people who have been touched by jacobs you know who have been cured by jacobs in a in a few year span they have all killed themselves and others and some of them in pretty you know awful ways and Jamie was cured so the end of this is kind of Jamie just like he's just waiting on his time it's like he knows at some point this is going to happen to him he, he he's going to he's either you know, the implication is that he's going to kill himself and then he's going to end up in this world that he glimpsed. He only got a glimpse of this awful, awful world. And he, there, he, he, he questions, you know, whether or not it's even real. Maybe the, maybe this creature was lying to him. Maybe it's not, maybe that's not the afterlife. 
And his therapist even says to him, like, hey, there's a lot of people who have had, you know, near-death experiences or have died and come back, and they they claim that they have seen a heaven. And he, he, I think he tries to give him a little bit of comfort, and he's like, well, maybe whatever you saw was only part of it, or it was lying. It's a, it's a creature of lies. But we all know that this is a Stephen King story. And we know that we're all just, we're all just going to end up in the knoll. Oh boy. Jamie's brother is in a hospital. He attacked um, his partner. He has gone crazy. And you know what? Let me, uh, should I, should I read this? There's a, there's another little section here. You think that what I just read is the, that's it. You know, how can it get any worse? We're going to do, there's a little section here about all these people who have had um, run-ins with Jacobs and they have killed themselves or killed others. And yeah, I'll, I'll read a little bit of that too. Here, here we go. Not all of Jacobs cures killed themselves, but over the next two years, a great many did. Not all of them took loved ones with them. But over 50 did. This I know from my research, which I shared with Ed Braithwaite. He would like to write it off as coincidence. He can't quite do it, although he is happy to dispute my own conclusion from this parade of madness, suicide, and murder. Mother demands sacrifices. Patricia Farmingdale the lady who poured salt in her eyes recovered enough of her vision to smother her elderly father in his bed before blowing her brains out with her husband's Ruger. Emile Klein, the dirt eater, shot his wife and son and then went out to his garage, poured lawnmower gas over himself, and struck a match. Alice Adams, cured of cancer at a Cleveland revival went into a convenience store with her boyfriend's AR-15 and unloaded, killing three random people. When the clip was empty, she pulled a snub-nosed 38 from her pocket and fired it into the roof of her mouth. Margaret Chairmain, one of Pastor Danny's San Diego cures, Crohn's disease, threw her infant son from the balcony of her ninth-story apartment and then followed him down. Witnesses said she uttered not a sound as she fell. And then there was Al Stamper. You probably know about him. How could you have missed the screaming headlines in the supermarket tabloids? He invited both of his ex-wives to dinner, but one of them, the second I believe, got caught in traffic and showed up late, which was lucky for her. When she walked in the open door of Stamper's Westchester home, she discovered wife number one roped to a chair at the dining room table with the top of her head caved in. The ex-lead singer of the Volites emerged from the kitchen, brandishing a baseball bat, slimed with blood and hair. Wife number two fled the house screaming, with Stamper chasing after her. Halfway down the residential street, he fell to the pavement, dead of a heart attack. No surprise there. He was a heavyweight. Whew. There's a little more. It, uh, there, there's, a little mo there's a little more of that. But you know what? I'm going to leave that for you to, to read this book and, and find the rest yourself there. 
This book is dark. Mike Flanagan, you've heard me talk about Mike Flanagan before. He 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 directed Gerald's Game, which is a great adaptation. He directed The Perfect Doctor Sleep, which is an amazing adaptation. Uh, he, of course, did um, Haunting of Hill House uh, and other Netflix great shows. He was going to adapt this at one time, and he did write a screenplay. Um, I don't think the screenplay is out there, but if you go over and listen to the King cast, they have an episode all about revival and they've read that script. They were able to get a hold of it. And it just, it, it's one of those things that it didn't happen. Uh, it was written. It was going to, they were going to try to push it into pre-production and just the studio. I think the studio probably read it and was like, Oh, maybe not. Maybe, maybe we're not going to do this at this time. So I think currently there are no plans to get this made into a film, but maybe possibly I would love for Mike Flanagan to get to do this. This is definitely uh, is definitely his kind of thing. Whew. And and speaking of the King cast, I just want to say as of today as as of me recording this, they had Stephen King on their show. They got Stephen King and and that that's very excited for the uh, very exciting for those guys. I'm I'm happy to that they got that done. And I listened to the episode and it was really good timing because they talked to him about revival. There hasn't been a lot of uh you know interviews with King about this story and they they ask him some good questions. So when you're done listening to this, go over to the King cast, listen to their Stephen King interview. He touches on revival and you just listen to those guys. They're 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 good at what they do. I get most of my information from them. Don't tell them that. Guys, this book is... It's it's scary. Uh, the implications towards the end of this book are very scary. You know, I was reading this and I... I was halfway through it and I was like, well, this one's not... This is not so bad. This is... As far as Stephen King stuff goes, this is a little more calm. This doesn't seem as crazy. Of course there is some sort of supernatural presence throughout because you do wonder how he's curing these people. Why are these people um, having weird side effects? Why are they killing themselves after? But I just never expected this to go where it did. And I legitimately sat up last night and I, and just thought about this. I, I read this book yesterday. And as soon as I was done, I went back and read like the last 50 pages again. I just had to read. It's such a crazy circumstance that happens sort of out of nowhere. It's like, you don't even really, the buildup that you're getting doesn't seem like a buildup to this. So when you're reading a book like this, it's a 400 page book. You're 350 pages in and then that happens. I was like, hold on. Excuse me. Please repeat yourself. I had to go back and I had to reread that. Some crazy shit out there, guys. I, I hope you enjoyed this. I think we're going to maybe restructure the way we're releasing these Jacob Walsh versus Stephen King episodes. They're still going to go to Patreon. They're still going to be Patreon exclusive. But I think after living on Patreon for a little while, I think they will start to release 
to the general public, let some other people get their ears on these. Please, as always, let me know if you like these. Let me know if you're listening to these. Let me know if you listen to one of these and it makes you go out and read a Stephen King book. Let me know if you're tired of me spoiling all of these. I kind of feel bad that every one of these is just me reading the end of the book to you, basically. It's just me telling you what happens. I, I, I like talking about it and I like getting into it, but I do feel a little bad. If, if that's not the case, let me know. Let me know that you're listening, please. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this on I'm going to end this on the last page of this book. I'm just going to you know what? I guess I can't say I feel that bad because I'm just reading you the last page of the book at this point. When four o'clock comes and our visit is over, I reverse course and walk back down to the atrium where the shadows of the palms, the avocados, and the big, twisted banyan at the center of it all have begun to grow long. I count my steps, and I take little glances at the door ahead of me, but otherwise keep my gaze firmly fixed on the carpet, unless I hear that voice whispering my name. Sometimes when that happens, I'm able to ignore it. Sometimes I cannot. Sometimes I look up in spite of myself and see that the hospital wall, painted soothing pastel yellow, has been replaced with gray stones, held together by ancient mortar and covered with ivy. The ivy is dead, and the branches look like grasping skeletal hands. The small door in the wall is hidden. Astrid was right about that, but it's there. The voice comes from behind it, drifting through an ancient, rusty keyhole. I walk on resolutely. Of course I do. Horrors beyond comprehension wait on the other side of that door. Not just the land of death, but the land beyond death. A place full of insane colors, mad geometry, and bottomless chasms where the great ones live their endless alien lives and think their endless malevolent thoughts. It's the knoll beyond that door. I walk on and think of the couplet in Bree's last email. That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. Jamie, an old woman's voice, whispers from the keyhole of a door only I can see. Come, come to me and live forever. No, I tell her, just as I told her in my vision, no. And so far so good, but eventually something will happen. Something always does, and when it does, I will come to Mother. <laughs>